This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Monday, new week, new goals for board review. Daphne, how are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. I am, you know, starting to be a little more anxiety provoking as we're, you know, getting down to the the wire here. What are we, five weeks from the exam? Um, We are doing maternal fetal medicine today. And I wanted to mention for people who haven't looked at the updated board specifications, they like, you quietly got an email about it, like, I don't know, November or something like mm. that. But the maternal fetal medicine um, percentage wise seems to be much reduced for- Went this. way down. Yeah. I think I think you're very nice by saying much reduced. <laughs> the, the, what did it go from like 14% yeah. to five or something? That's exactly right. 14% to 5%. So, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like, right? But- um, it's, it's of note. <laughs> it's. I think it's for the best. There were so yeah. many questions when I was reviewing uh, the last time around, where they're like, "Oh, would you would you recommend C-section or vaginal delivery?" Yeah. For this? It's like it's like I, I, it's. I don't it's know. An, it's. It doesn't matter. I think it's an it's interesting. Not my job. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting discussion, but it's not really what you would want to ask people you're certifying for a profession in neonatology. It's like. Yeah. It, it would be nice for me to know, but like, is it essential for me to know this or? what medication should I start this mother on? It's like, I really will never, ever be asked that question. And it would be right. wrong for me to be asked that question considering that it's not my purview. So right. um, I, think it's, I think it's for the best. And, um, and I think there were other fields that were underrepresented. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and I think they were underrepresented not because people didn't want to talk about them, but because they were just short on percentages, I guess. Right, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Okay, shall we? Yeah, let's get us started. Okay, so we'll start with MFM question two. A neonate presents with depressed nasal bridge, nail hypoplasia, seizures, and stippled bone epiphyses. These findings are most likely a result from intrauterine exposure to which teratogen? Is it A, lithium, B, phenobarbital, C, salicylates, D, tetracycline, or uh, E, warfarin? Um. Okay, so th- this question, thankfully, I remembered, right? Uh, the depressed nasal bridge, the nails, the seizures, and the stippled, uh, stippled bone epiphyses, um, that is warfarin, as far as I remember. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I didn't remember some of these others in terms of uh, tetracyclines and things like that. Uh, the one thing I was confused about was that I think, I don't know, if I, if I remembered correctly, warfarin, if you take it late in the pregnancy, I think it's okay. But I, so I, w- I was wondering if that was a trick, but I remember this to be the, the syndrome of uh, warfarin exposure in utero. So I picked E, uh, warfarin. Okay. So that's correct. The answer is E, warfarin. So intrauterine exposure to warfarin during six to 12 weeks of gestation leads to clinical manifestations in almost a quarter of neonates. 
And the clinical findings are just like in the question, a depressed nasal bridge, nasal hypoplasia, and stippled bone epiphyses. Um, Other associated findings are low birth weight, they can have seizure activity, and cognitive disabilities. Um, If there's intrauterine exposure after the 12th week of gestation, um, there is less impact on the fetus and neonate. And for some of these other questions, so lithium comes up all the time. Um, That exposure leads to Epstein's anomaly uh, of the heart Mm. uh, in neonates. Um, Phenobarb exposure can lead to cleft lip and palate, cardiac problems. Um, And interestingly, this makes sense, but decreased vitamin K transfer uh, from the placenta. Uh, So actually an increased risk for hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Uh, Tetracycline exposure um, really affects tooth um, and bone development, including uh, permanent tooth discoloration um, of the, you know, teeth once they they come in. Um, And then uh, salicylate exposure. So there have been lots of studies that show um, birth defects in animal studies, um, but they have um, not been shown to cause birth defects in humans. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of reasons why some women still are getting aspirin, um, during pregnancy. I was like, I can't remember the, uh, the syndrome with, uh, the syndrome or the effects of aspirin. So maybe maybe there was a reason for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My turn then. Um, Mm -hmm. we're doing MFM question five. Uh, Daphna, the obstetrician calls the neonatal team emergently to a delivery because there are late fetal heart rate decelerations observed on the fetal heart monitor. What is the most physiologic cause of this pattern? So what is the physiologic cause of a uh, late fetal heart deceleration? Choice A is fetal sleep. Choice B is head compression. Choice C is placental compression. Choice D is umbilical cord compression. And choice E is you... you Uteroplacental insufficiency. Okay. You know how um, we had a recent, um, <coughs> who are we recording with? One of our giants of neonatology. Doc, and you were yeah. saying, um, yeah. you were saying, you know, I sometimes think I teach the same thing over and over <laughs> and over again. So I can't, I don't know why, but when I was on OB, this, it didn't matter who, which attending was on, but they wanted me to know what did the D cells mean? And so right. this one I have like ingrained in my in my mind. So I know that late um, lates um, are are concerning for your e your utero placental insufficiency. That is correct, and it's kind of a valuable thing to know. I remember when when my wife was in labor and I was checking the strip. That's the mm. only thing I was looking at. That's right. For. That's right. <laughs> it's like uh, even so, right? When we go to our, we have a morning and evening huddle on labor and delivery. It yeah, and the tracings the are on the team yeah. and the tracings are on the wall. So I can uh-huh. say, hmm, uh, what's going on in room three? You guys had been, <laughs> you didn't say anything about room three, but I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm concerned about this here. They don't like it when I do that. Yeah, they don't like it when we when we chime in. Huh? <laughs> so uh, yes, you're cor- you're correct. So the most likely cause of late fetal heart rate decelerations is a uteroplacental um, insufficiency. And um, this occurs by two mechanisms. Um, So the uh, placental insufficiency leads to fetal hypoxemia, which then in turn leads to a chemoreceptor response that then enhances alpha adrenergic activity and then leads to fetal hypertension, 
then which then leads to a baroreceptor response, a parasympathetic response, and eventually a late deceleration. Uh, the other mechanism is that the fetal hypoxemia will lead to myocardial depression and eventually a late deceleration. Um, obviously, there are other forms of decelerations, and if they're not late, they could be early or variable. Um, early uh, fetal heart rate decelerations usually are involved with fetal head compression, which causes pressure on the fetal head and changes in cerebral blood flow, resulting in sort of vagal deceleration of the heart rate. And then you have these variable fetal heart rate decelerations that are caused by umbilical cord compression with a decrease in fetal heart rate by either a barrel or a chemoreceptor vagal response or a fetal myocardial uh, depression. So um, when we are talking about these, sometimes I think what they could potentially ask too is that they could show you the pictures, mm -hmm. right? And um, the late deceleration, um, basically, you have to look at the, at the maternal contractions, which are basically just a, uh, a wave, wave pattern, right, of uh, a tracing with peaks being uh, maternal contractions. And then what you want to see is that when you're tracing a line above the apex of the maternal contraction, you want to see that the fetal deceleration happens after that. If, the, if that is the case, then you're dealing with a late uh, deceleration. Okay. Um, now, what is the most common type of all these decelerations? That's another question they could ask you, and it's variable. So variable decelerations are the most uh, common type. And the, um, and the variable deceleration is just um, an abrupt decrease in the heart rate, and then it will quickly come right back up. They can be like U-shaped, V-shaped, W-shaped. They have no relationship to contraction. So you shouldn't see that pattern that we just described, for example, with the late decelerations where they're sort of time with the time of the contraction. They just happen randomly. And, uh, and they're defined as mild, moderate, or severe, depending on the number of beats per minute of the heart rate and how long the duration is. So a variable deceleration that is mild is usually when the heart rate remains above 80 beats per minute for less, and it, the, the, the deceleration is less than 30 seconds. A moderate uh, variable decel would be 70 to 80 beats per minute, and the, the, the variable decel can be 30 to 60 seconds, and a severe variable deceleration would be less than 70 beats per minute for more than 60 seconds. And like we said, it has to do with, with cord compression. Um, the early um, decelerations, uh, you're expecting the 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 nadir of the deceleration to happen at the same time as the peak of the contraction. They're never uh, above 20 beats per minute below baseline. And like we said, it has to do with uh, a head compression. Finally, obviously, the last thing I want to mention is this fear, this, this, this <laughs> pattern that we fear most, which is this sinusoidal pattern of uh, where you see basically um, uh, a sinusoidal pattern for <laughs> the, the from the tracing, and it's related to severe anemia, fetal maternal hemorrhage, and asphyxia, and that warrants immediate, immediate delivery. Okay, that's question five. Okay, uh, question six. Uh, what is the prevalence of a single umbilical artery, uh, or again, a two-vessel cord, so one vein, one artery? Is it A, less than 1%, B, 5%, C, 10%, D, 15%, or E, 25%? Okay, so um, in this answer, I uh, in this answer, I didn't really remember exactly what was the percentage of single umbilical artery, and I thought I remembered it to be larger than what uh, it truly was, and so um, I picked B five percent. 
Yeah, so it's close. Uh, but the, the real answer is, is that it's less than 1%, 0.4 to 0.6% of the population. You know, we're always looking for those two vessel cords. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it's less than 1%. However, it's something that is much more frequent in twins um, compared with singletons and other multiple gestations. So it's almost three to four times more common in twins. Um, and if you find the single umbilical artery, um, it may be associated with urogenital tract or cardiac anomalies. So um, you would want to assess for some of those uh, other findings potentially, though it's it's not uh, there's no really standard of care about what is the workup for single umbilical artery, um, which is interesting because it's still one of the most common fetal anomalies. Um, and, uh, the other risk, the other associated findings, um, cardiac anomalies are probably the most common. Um, even though, you know, we, we usually think of, uh, urogenital or renal anomalies. So cardiac is actually the most common with an odds ratio of 20, um, intrauterine growth restriction, which kind of makes sense. Odds ratio of two renal anomalies with an odds ratio of three, and then preterm birth an odds ratio of 2.2. Um, so uh, more common in, in uh, preterm infants. Um, the other questions uh, that are in the neonatology review book um, focus on uh, like other associations. And um, it's, it's good to know that at this time, there's no known association between single umbilical artery and fetal demise. Um, mm. But there is this association with other anomalies. Yeah, because it used to be that if I remember correctly, back in the day, they used to do echoes on these babies automatically. Uh, and I think that practice shifted. Yeah. And um, I think probably the most common thing that centers are doing are, you know, the renal ultrasound. Renal ultrasound too. That's uh, true. But not everybody is if they don't find anything else on exam. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you for that. Question eight. A term male infant has cyanosis and respiratory distress after birth. An echocardiogram reveals a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. Which of the following maternal medication is associated with pulmonary hypertension in the newborn? Choice A, indomethacin. Choice B, lithium. Choice C, magnesium sulfate. Choice D, nifedipine. Choice E, terbutaline. Okay, so um, this answer, it's, it's A, it's indomethacin. Bam, just like that, huh? <laughs> um, so indomethacin is a, uh, it's correct. It's the correct answer. It's a prostaglandin synthase inhibitor, and it's usually administered to pregnant, um, to pregnant women with, as a tocolytic. Uh, so it can lead to persistent pulmonary hypertension, renal, renal insufficiency, ileal perforation, or necrotizing enterocolitis in the neonate, and thus prolonged maternal use is not recommended. Um, I think there's more and more data also to show that endomethacin for tocolytic for for as a tocolytic agent in preterm babies is it's not the best because especially because of the rates of neck as well. Um, the question that I was again I would have to look that up. I'm wondering if it has to do with the PDA, um, but I don't think it causes closure of the PDA. But we do use it for closure of the PDA. So um, I, I don't, don't remember. I don't think it has it has a correlation. Anyway, uh, the other choices that they offered were lithium, uh, which we've discussed earlier in this episode, where uh, mothers who are receiving lithium can have heart defect, could, could lead to congenital heart defects, but specifically Epstein's anomaly. Um, and uh, and and lithium can also cause um, 
other things like a fetal goiter, premature birth, uh, hypotonia, arrhythmia, seizures, and diabetes insipidus. Uh, magnesium sulfate is another tocolytic uh, that's used to decrease uh, uterine contractility um, by decreasing acetylcholine release from the neuromuscular junction and by acting as a calcium antagonist. The complications usually lead to respiratory depression. We've all seen babies that were born to mothers who were receiving magnesium with, with severe respiratory failure, decreased peristalsis, hypotension, and hypotonia. Nifedipine is a calcium channel blocker that's used for tocoly tocolysis as well. Um, and its prolonged use can lead to utero-placental insufficiency, which technically late, very late D cells, right? Which we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the last choice that they had uh, in the question were terbutaline, which is a beta-2 agonist. And, um, and basically, uh, it decreases intracellular calcium with associated decrease in uterine contractility. So uh, yeah, I guess if I hadn't mentioned, it's another medication that was used as a tocolytic. Now, fetal tachycardia can be associated with uh, terbutaline exposure of the mother, um, but there are minimal effects on the neonate. So this is, yeah, endomethacin, neonatal pulmonary hypertension. Okay. Do we have time for more? Yeah, one more. Okay. Question number nine. Uh, you're asked to consult with a 34-year-old prima gravida who is admitted at 28 weeks gestation with concerns of worsening preeclampsia. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Which of the following <laughs> statements about preeclampsia is correct? A, Preeclampsia is associated with hypertension and proteinuria. B, preeclampsia is the development of hypertension after 24 weeks gestation. C, severe preeclampsia refers to women with a blood pressure greater than 160 over 110 and seizures. D, the risk of disease increases with increasing number of pregnancies. Or E, all of the above are true. Yeah, so somehow because they say worsening, it feels like I have to answer even faster. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's go one Gotta by one. Gotta get the one. bed ready, you know? I know, it's like, let's go, let's go. Um, choice A is saying that preeclampsia is associated with hypertension and proteinuria. Um, that is correct. Preeclampsia develops uh, is a development of hypertension after 24 weeks. That somehow uh, I remembered to be 20 weeks. But it's one of these things where because I, I don't see uh, pregnant mothers at 20 weeks, I was like, did I remember this incorrectly? Mm -hmm. Is it not 24? So I didn't know. So I left it B. Um, C was severe preeclampsia. That's another one. C is a very typical test-taking strategy. Severe preeclampsia refers to women with a blood pressure of 160 above 110. You're like, yes. And then mm -hmm. at the, the next line, and it says, and seizures, which it's is tacked like- Tacked it on there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, then no. Uh, uh, preeclampsia is, yeah, there's absence of seizures, obviously. Um, so that is not correct. Um, the risk of disease increases with the inc with increasing number of pregnancies, meaning the more uh, pregnancies you go through, the more you're at risk of preeclampsia. Um, I did not. I knew that to be untrue. And then finally, E was all of the above are correct. So, so that's definitely uh, not the case. So now um, we're looking for the correct statement. Uh, the only one I could see was hypertension and proteinuria being the definition of preeclampsia. So I picked A and the others I kind of ruled out because, um, yeah, because, yeah, because what we just explained. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is a tricky question, especially because some things have changed. And you may notice that if you have um, different um, editions of the neonatology review. Um, 
But A says preeclampsia is associated with hypertension and proteinuria, which is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, preeclampsia is the development of hypertension um, after 20 weeks, like you said. Um, and um, there are some uh, defined characteristics. So one thing I wanted to mention about answer A, so actually proteinuria used to be one of the um, definitive criteria. And and now it's really that it's um, a, a hypertension plus one or, uh, you know, one or more um, associated uh, complications, but mm-hmm. is still associated with proteinuria. Um, C, uh, like you said, um, severe preeclampsia is a blood pressure greater than 160 over 110, but is not seizures. So, um, having seizures would mean that the, the diagnosis is then eclampsia, not preeclampsia. And so treatment of, um, severe range blood pressures or some of these other associated findings, um, the goal of that is to avoid seizures, um, in pregnancy. Um, the risk of disease increases with increasing number of pregnancies. So having had preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy puts you at risk for preeclampsia in a subsequent pregnancy, but um, it's still more commonly seen in, in the first pregnancy. Um, so being a primate actually is a, a risk factor. Mm-hmm. So E, all of the above are not true. So let's talk a little bit more about preeclampsia. It's one of the most common complications of pregnancy. It affects 5 to 10% um, of pregnancies. Um, and it's a subtype of these hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, which is the, the kind of spectrum of gestational hypertension, um, uh, preeclampsia superimposed onto chronic hypertension. And unfortunately, while this is very much under study, we don't really understand the exact pathophysiology. Um, we know it has something to do with oxidative stress, the inflammatory cascade, um, and vascular endothelial growth factors all playing a significant role. Um, and there's something about something that happens at the time of implantation that is not preventable um, that really changes um, the kind of um, remodeling of the of the spinal arteries, leading to decreased uterine placental blood flow, um, and the the end effects are um, placental ischemia, and we can sometimes see those effects in babies born to moms with preeclampsia. Which then makes sense when it comes to saying that it doesn't mean that with increased gestation, then your risk is increased. Because if right. it's if it's a way your placenta, if there's a, an issue with implement, in implantation of the placenta, then mm-hmm. you would expect that this should happen even on the first pregnancy too. Correct. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Um. Let's see. It can, like I said, it can occur in women who uh, were previously healthy or it can be superimposed on somebody who has already chronic hypertensive disorder even before pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And we'll review the risk factors again. Um, pri- uh, prima parity, twin gestation, uh, really all multiples, um, chronic hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. Um, and then the, to talk a little bit more about some of the severe features, so blood pressure greater than 160 over 110, um, changes in vision, headaches, uh, oliguria, pulmonary edema, and then fetal growth restriction. Um, there, there are parameters for proteinuria, but um, 
it's no longer a necessary requirement if one of the other severe complications are met. Mm-hmm. And um, also any of the manifestations of um, help syndrome. So help hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. So interestingly, help syndrome doesn't necessarily require elevated blood pressure. It's not one of the criteria, but it is thought to be on the continuum of preeclampsia. And so if we see some of those laboratory findings um, in the face of elevated blood pressure, um, then they meet criteria. And like I said, seizure is a manifestation of eclampsia, not preeclampsia. Thank you. And it can continue, right? And I mean, yeah. I was talking to my wife about it. It doesn't like it's it. It should be improved readily after delivery. But some some mothers after delivery still still struggle with um, with blood pressure issues. Which is yeah, common. absolutely. Actually, I'm trying to. I can't find the exact. Don't percentage. worry about it. Okay. Okay, that's it that's, for today. All right, Daphne, that was fun. Um, see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.